So Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 18 to 29, which is the church in Thyatira. One of the most important tests in the Christian life that we will face is how do we interact with the world? How do we interact with the world? Jesus, in His high priestly prayer in John 17, prayed for those who are His disciples that they would be in the world, but not of the world. By world, I do not mean the physical globe that we inhabit. John, the author of Revelation, writes elsewhere that we should not love the world. Here's his words in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world means do not love the world order, the world system, the outlook of humanity that has rebelled against God. To love the world is to be governed by certain instincts or desires that lead us away from God. It is rebellion against God. Now, the Christian is commanded for sure to love God. As disciples of Christ, we gladly take up our cross, we die to ourselves, and we live for Him who loved us. Jesus has captured our hearts, and we love Him. So we come now to the church in Thyatira. It's the fourth letter of seven letters to churches. We're in a series going through the book of Revelation, and there is this mini-series, the seven letters to churches. As I said, this is the fourth one. It's in the middle. This church is facing the test of tolerance. And that's my title this morning, the test of tolerance. Their interaction with the world will be found to be wanting. It will not be healthy. Thyatira is probably the lowliest of the seven churches that receive a letter, the least significant, in other words. Yet what is written to them is the longest letter of any of the churches. And I want to suggest that additional length makes this letter very important for us to consider. So, as we look at these letters, you must understand that the problem we face as we live today is not going to be exactly the same. Uh, meat offered to idols? Like, well, I'm clean. I've got no issue with that. So, it's easy to think, well, this might not apply to me. But, but the roots remain the same. And so, we have much to learn from each one of these letters. Revelation 2, 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, 
who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the preaching of his word. So here's the situation in Thyatira, verses 18 and 19. The letter begins with the format to which we've been accustomed to the angel of the church. Simply means a messenger. So whatever that messenger is, there's a message to be delivered. Revelation was sent to all seven churches because this letter is relevant to all of the churches. And therefore, it's relevant to us today. Then we have a description of the word spoken. Jesus says, these are the words of the Son of God. Now, that's an unusual title. It's the only time it appears in Revelation, this title of Son of God. And it means not that Jesus was somehow born uh, in, in the Godhead. It does not mean that at all. What it means is that Jesus is of the same essence and the same nature as the Father, meaning that Jesus also is God. Same nature means Jesus is also God, and He is speaking as God. And then a picture follows. Eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Those are words taken from Revelation 1, 14 to 15. And I want to encourage you as we go through this book of Revelation, don't lose sight of chapter 1. Don't lose sight of the description of Jesus there because it's a powerful picture. Jesus is omniscient, He's powerful, He's holy, and He will judge us all. There is no avoidance of that. We will all appear before the throne of God. We don't say that as Christians with fear. We say that with hope because there is a promise that we will receive rewards for what we have done. That is nothing to be afraid of. But then Jesus communicates that He knows them. 
In this case, he knows their works, and what follows is an impressive resume. This is a resume that I would personally take in my life. I would gladly claim this. He says of their love, excels. So, unlike Ephesus, which Aaron covered as the first letter, Ephesus was lacking in love, strong in truth, but it was a dead orthodoxy. They were lacking in love. Uh, this church, known by God for their love and their faith. They trust God. They believe God. They're walking by faith, not by sight. So, they have love and faith. He knows their service, which means their good deeds are effective. It means they're being salt and light in their situation. And He knows their patient endurance. Patient endurance is necessary for maturity, and I like to say perseverance is undefeated because you can't stop that which keeps on going. Perseverance is necessary for us to come to maturity in the Christian life. And fifth, Jesus says your latter works exceed the first, unlike Ephesus again. So there's growth in this church. That's an impressive list. I mean, May these words describe Redemption Hill Church. Love, faith, service, patient endurance, growth in works. Then, in a surprising turn I would not anticipate, Jesus points to a problem in the church. There's a cancer lurking in the body. There's a problem that if it is not addressed will prove to be deadly for the church. Verse 20, the problem at Thyatira. The problem was excessive tolerance. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. The correction comes from Jesus, who is jealous as a lover of his bride. He's a jealous lover. And it involves discernment of truth and subsequent direction for the Christian. The church in Ephesus, the very first letter, They had truth, but they lacked love. Thyatira is doing well in that regard, but they do not perceive their need to guard themselves from the world. They are unaware of that category. So, William Hendrickson in his commentary says, Thyatira was indeed a lampstand, a light bearer, but this does not constitute an excuse for failure to exercise discipline with respect to members who make a compromise with the world. This work must be done by a local church out of love for the individual saint, the individual believer, but a concern for the health of the entire body. It isn't popular work, but it is necessary work. They tolerated the woman Jezebel, likely a real person, likely a female, but probably not her actual name. Jesus would, from time to time, if you're familiar with the New Testament, He would rename a person. For instance, Simon became Peter, Saul became Paul. The thinking in this text is Jezebel has been given a name because she reminds one of the Old Testament Jezebel. She was the wife of King Ahab, and the accounts are found in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Fascinating reading 
uh, dramatic reading, actually, of what took place in that day. Jezebel was wicked, powerful, harmful to people, and she challenged both Elijah and Elisha. She led Ahab and Israel, is the way the text puts it, into idolatry, the worship of Baal. She exerted influence. She killed prophets. She murdered an innocent man to take his property. And Elijah, after calling down fire from heaven and killing 400 prophets of Baal, trembles before Jezebel. That strong, that significant was her influence and her strength. Now, from this description, we can see dangers for our time because the relevant concern is what does Thyatira have to do with us? What do we do with this section of Scripture? Well, here are four different dangers that I would number for you, and these do not have to do with the concern about Jezebel being a female. In other words, this list is going to be relevant whether it's a female or a male. It just so happens in Thyatira that it was a female exerting influence. Danger number one, beware being influenced by a powerful personality. Personality influence are good if they're going in the right direction, but they aren't always going in the right direction. So, what we want to look for as someone is teaching, we want to look at do they use the Word of God correctly? We want to ask, do they help us love Jesus more? Or are they building us into themselves? Do they help you boast in the cross of Christ and in the gospel? Is that what they are pointing us toward? Do they help you grow in godliness and the fear of the Lord? Do they connect you to others and to the body of Christ? Those are helpful categories of influence, but not every teacher will steer us in that way. Danger number two, beware improper authority. Authority is God-given. It's a necessary gift to the church, but authority only goes as far as the Bible. Jezebel called herself a prophetess. She elevated herself to that position. She called herself that. She took charge. And you can only ask, well, where is the church in that? And that's the problem. They were asleep in the light. And where are the pastors? If she was under their authority, it would somehow be honored, and you would see a difference, but she was not a team player. She was independent. She went solo doing her own thing. So beware improper authority. Danger number three is sound doctrine. Jesus says, she's teaching my servants. She's giving them instruction, but she's taking them down a wrong path. Examine what you're taught according to the Word of God. In Acts 17, be a Berean. Examine the Word for yourself because we each give an account to God. Jezebel is teaching new things and deep things. It's not a simple message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. She's adding new things to the account. And when you listen to teaching... Listen to what isn't said as well, because often where error comes in is what's being overlooked. Uh, years ago, I was pastoring at Living Hope, had a number of folks 
in my church attend a conference that a pastor was putting on. And so I read a couple of his books to try to understand the story. And, and the books were decent, as in strong. Like I could agree with like 95% of what was there. There was 5% I struggled with. But my biggest struggle was what was lacking. What wasn't being said is very, very important. And fourth, godliness. The fruit of Jezebel's teaching was idolatry and sexual immorality. Jezebel wasn't saying leave the church. Heresy always has a blend of truth in it. It's rare to run across heresy that's attractive, that's plainly, baldly a lie put before us. Now, she's not saying leave the church. She's advocating for different ways of life, one for the church and one for the world, two different ways to go at Christianity. Now, how does this one happen? Well, her teaching seems to be something like this, and this is by way of deduction from the text. It seems like she was teaching, in order to conquer Satan, you must know him. So those of you that are military buffs might know that around 500 B.C., uh, Sun Tzu said, a Chinese military authority wrote a famous book, said, know your enemy and know yourself. Know your enemy. Jezebel seems to be saying you need to get to know the enemy in order to be acquainted with the enemy, and then to conquer sin, you must know it by experience. Now, we all tend to think that experience is helpful. So, for instance, if, um, let's, say, let's say you're a parent and you're, and you're going through a challenge with one of your kids. It happens from time to time. Well, are you going to go to an older couple who's been through the parenting wars and you see good fruit or are you going to go to, and so no offense to singles, but are you going to go to like a 21-year-old single and say, hey, could you give me advice on parenting? Right? We don't, we don't tend to do that, right? Now, a 21-year-old single who knows the Word of God can actually help give you helpful counsel. So I wouldn't, I'm not dismissing that out of hand. I'm commenting on how we tend to understand that I'd rather talk to somebody who's been through something, is familiar with something, than someone who isn't. So Jezebel seems to be saying, to conquer sin, you got to know it by experience. Therefore, a Christian should learn what's called here the deep things of Satan. Knowing Satan, being familiar with sin. So Jezebel is saying, attend the guild feast, and I'll explain that in a minute. Eat meat offered to idols, commit fornication, and become a better Christian in the process. The guild feasts in Thyatira were a big deal. Thyatira was known for purple cloth. Think of Dorcas, for instance, in the account in Acts. And they were known for metalworking, and they formed guilds. So the best equivalent I can give you is a union. If you're familiar with a union, you join a union for alleged benefits with a given craft. So they formed these guilds, and you had to belong to one of the guilds to make a living. Um, if you'd be familiar with unions in Philadelphia, you'd understand this uh, quite strongly. Uh, you must belong. Uh, or the unions give you physical problems 
if you are an open shop and you come in and do work, like say roofing, for instance, is the most famous one. Uh, they, they don't tolerate that. Uh, you got to belong to the union. If I retire, you had to belong to the guild and you had to worship like they worshiped. It was a spiritual enterprise, spiritual exercise. It wasn't just like in our time, here's a union where, where you work. This was worship is coming alongside with it. You had to worship what they worshiped. And so, what's being taught is just compromise. Just, just go along with it. Just compromise. Don't, don't make a big deal. Don't live differently. The situation is hard. Now, I say again, this is added to the church. This isn't like come away from the church. It's added into is what's being taught. Reminds me of my friend Paul in Nepal. Uh, one of the issues they face in Nepal is Hindus who convert to Christ and then are told by their friends and family, that's okay to add Christ to the list of gods. Thousands of gods Hindus have. It's okay to add Christ to that. But if that person insists on the exclusivity of Jesus. They're ostracized from the family. They'll be, they'll be kicked out of the home. They'll be out of the will that's left. It, it's, a, it's a dividing line where one can't mix and blend if they are a faithful Christian. But what's hard in this situation is, and you got to feel this, your livelihood is on the line. I mean, livelihood matters, right? Your livelihood is on the line. So Jezebel's teaching this way of compromise, but as we follow Jesus, there isn't any compromise. He's a jealous lover. There is no compromise with the world as we follow Jesus. In our time, there are jobs where one is expected to socialize, and one may be put in a situation where they are tempted towards sin to compromise in a given way. This most commonly, from my experience, happens when people travel for work. So, it doesn't mean traveling's wrong, but it is possible to be out with co-workers who all want to do something, and if you don't do that thing, that sinful thing, you're viewed as unfaithful. You're going to be headed toward ostracized, and if it's the manager, the boss is included. You could be on your way out the door, to which I would say, fine, better to lose your job than perish in hell. And that's the risk. That's what's at stake for these folks. The danger is losing your soul. So, in our actions with the world, we're patient and kind. We genuinely love sinners. We have a heart for them, but we draw a clear line between our behavior and their behavior. We do not enter into the world the way the world enters into the world. So, a question for you. What does the world think about you? What's the world think about you? Over the decades, I've known folks who fit in so well with the world, they're proud of how well they get along with the world, they fit right in, and the danger in fitting right in is it looks like you're of the world because 
The gospel is offensive. It's exclusive. We seek to be salt and light. We seek to be winsome, patient, kind. But there will be times when we're hated because of Jesus. He has promised this. So for the church to be effective, it must look different than the world. We will not reach the world by being the same as the world, because if we're the same as the world, what do we reach them with? We have nothing to offer if we're the same as the world. We're called to a different life. We're called to godliness, to purity, and to righteousness, because we've been changed, been adopted into the family of God, and we are clean. Now, because we're loved by God, He will correct us when necessary. So the correction given the church in Thyatira is in verses 21 to 23. God is gracious to His people, and His kindness leads us to repentance. Let us be ever thankful that God does not quit on His people. You know what it's like to quit on someone. They don't seem to be getting it. They don't seem to be making the progress we want to see. The wonderful thing about God, as we're adopted into His family and as we belong to Him, He'll never leave us or forsake us. He is faithful to us, and He does not tire of us. He corrects us because He loves us. He is a good, loving Father, just like human fathers correct their children precisely because they love them. If a human father doesn't correct a child, ultimately, he hates that child because the dad is called to bring up the child in the ways of the Lord, the nurture and instruction and admonition of the Lord. It is loving to correct. So in verse 21, we see God gives Jezebel time to repent. God's very kind. Jezebel's up against a rock that isn't going to shift. God isn't going to change. God is constant. God is gracious to Jezebel and gives her time, but she does not repent. I appeal to you all to consider your love for Jesus and your love for the world. Because Jezebel's in a place where she's being confronted by Jesus because there's love of the world. And Jesus won't brook, or countenance, a rival. So she should repent and turn away, and that's what you should do as well if you're caught in a snare of loving the world, called to turn and repent for the glory of God. God's correction and her refusal to repent, the text says, will lead to a bed of sickness, whether literal or figurative, we aren't interested either way in a bed of sickness. Her followers get the same thing. Tolerance can be deadly in the influence on our souls. Loving the world, following our cravings and appetites towards sin is harmful, and ultimately it means eternal destruction. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. So, I don't know if you're familiar with the Amish, but I was raised in Lancaster County. My mom was actually connected to the Amish. Uh, if you would have seen her as a child in the way she was dressed, you would have thought she was Amish, but 
their house had electricity and they had a car. But otherwise, very plain. My mom loved to tell the story. She's no longer living. Um, like, when did you know that you didn't want to be Amish? And she would laugh and say, when I was two. And she meant it. She wasn't joking. Uh, she didn't like the whole system, and so she left as some sort of a rebel, probably runs in the family. My grandfather, back in the 20s, was excommunicated, shunned, because he married the bishop's daughter, and he wouldn't grow a beard when he got married. He said, where's that in the Bible? They said, doesn't matter. It's how we do it. It's the rules of the community. So he was... He was uh, summarily dismissed. So we aren't talking strange rules and weird rules. We aren't moving outside of the Scriptures as we understand righteousness and godliness. We aren't seeing how weird we can be and how different we can be because the Amish take an extreme approach in their approach to life. Uh, we don't do that. We're not Amish. We are in the world. It's just that our hearts are not of the world. Verse 23, final result is death. There is no life in sin. It has a hook. It has an appeal. There's no life in it. It will never satisfy. There's no peace or joy, and you'll never get enough of whatever it is you're trying to do that you think will somehow satisfy. You're only more and more hooked as you practice sin. We don't overcome sin by getting to know it, by being familiar with it. We put it off, and we put godliness on as we seek to live the Christian life. So again, I want to say I plead with you to turn to Jesus if you're caught in idolatry, whether sexual in nature or financial, which is just as possible, or, or popularity. Jesus loves needy sinners who come to Him. Jesus loves when we humble ourselves, come with empty hands, and say, I believe in you, I trust you. Lord, help my unbelief. I want to follow you all of my days. So we don't compromise with the world because we died to the world. None of us, some of you need to hear this, none of us are clever enough to fool God. Not a one of us. Verse 23, he searches heart and mind and will give us what our works deserve. Now, that ought to be precious to the Christian. Give us what our works deserve. He examines hearts and minds. The world helps us see our heart. We can tell and discern where our love is focused. But now, in the closing verses of this section of Scripture, we come to the hope given the church in Thyatira. There's a faithful remnant that did not bend the knee. Uh, there, was, there was, we don't know if it's a minority, majority, but there are folks who did not bend the knee. Seems like a minority due to the letter, but some saints, thank God, have remained faithful. Praise God for faithful saints. Faithful saints are refreshing. They are a blessing. Faithful saints are the ones you want to hang around because you're aware they help you grow in the Lord. The faithful did not compromise. They didn't tolerate falsehood. They were only interested in Jesus. It wasn't Jesus plus anything. Jesus alone was sufficient for the faithful. They remained faithful in the midst of challenges. So Greg Beal in his commentary says, 
all the letters, all seven, deal with the theme of faithfulness to Christ in the midst of an often threatening pagan culture. That's where they lived. It's not necessarily something we might be familiar with, but our culture may yet become increasingly pagan. And if it does, we do not fret regarding evil in the land, Psalm 37. We don't fret. We don't worry. We're trusting God. And our eyes are fixed on Jesus so that when it comes to the world, we will not compromise with that system. Our eyes are fixed on the Word. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus, and we will live for Him. So Jesus commends them because the faithful have an impressive resume. So Jesus says, no other burden is added to you. What you're doing is great. Just keep it up. Keep doing what you are already doing. Only hold fast. Only hold fast, which means we're back to perseverance. Perseverance must do its work to bring us to maturity. So they're in a situation where for them to stand fast is probably going to have financial repercussion. And yet, the faithful choose to stand fast. They are trusting Jesus with their very lives. And then Jesus offers two promises to those who've conquered until the end. Authority over nations, meaning we rule with Jesus in all things or over all things. It's a reference to Psalm 2. And it seems to belong to heaven and eternity. And then second, the morning star, which is Jesus himself. We get Jesus. And the question in life will be, is Jesus enough for us? And it is, I think for myself, easy to think, I think Jesus is enough. But then the question is, what do you do when something's taken away? Until Jesus is all you have, we can't be sure of this, but I would love the thought of Jesus is sufficient for all of us. So we've learned Jesus is a jealous lover. We are not friends with the world. We are not. Again, doesn't mean we hate people. Doesn't mean we're rude and mean. We're patient and kind, but we do not love the world. James puts it this way in James 4, 4 and following. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Now, that's what the church in Thyatira needed to understand. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's no purpose, the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the Spirit he is made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We must not and we will not tolerate worldliness in the church. We invite all manner of folks in. And all manner of folks can attend. But for those who join, who belong, worldliness must not be allowed to creep in to this church or any faithful church. Rather, we will hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we will not love the world come what may. We will not bend the knee to that system. 
So eventually, in the final and ultimate analysis, things will be turned upside down. We will rule and reign with King Jesus over all that is His, which is the entire universe. So let me close. Speaking spiritually, what do you see when you look at the world? What do you see when you look at the world? We ought to see a fallen reality with an understanding that Jesus has died for some of those folks. And so we are determined that Jesus should receive his inheritance. And so we are concerned to share the gospel with those who are lost and perishing. But we see danger in the world in that our hearts might be compromised if we fall in love with the world. We stand clear of the world. The songwriter said, take the world, but give me Jesus. And that's because Jesus is beautiful and lovely. He laid down his life for our sins. He's captured our hearts. We love him. And I say again, he's an exclusive lover. He desires 100% of what we have and who we are. So what do you see when you look at the world? Do you see something you're attracted to? Are you tempted towards some sin that you think would satisfy? We've died to all that. We've left that behind. So I'd like to encourage you to persevere and endure, understanding that some of us may face real, genuine heat in following Christ. It may come at us. So we need to see clearly what's going on. In 1952, swimmer Florence Chadwick attempted to swim 26 miles from California to Catalina Island. She swam with a team for protection from sharks. I think that sounds like a good idea. Uh, protection from sharks, cramps, injury, or fatigue. Roughly 15 hours, a thick fog sets in and clouds her vision in confidence. She tells her team she can't finish the swim. Yet she presses on for another hour before calling it quits. While sitting in the boat, Florence discovers that Catalina Island was only one more mile. Look, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I know I could have made it. Two months later, she made it. In fact, she made the swim two more times, swam the English Channel in each direction in record times. We must see clearly as we interact with the world. We've been given the Holy Spirit who leads us. We've been given the Word of God, which guides us as a lamp to our feet. And so these will guide our decisions as we relate to the world, as we stand separate from the world. We live for the superior promises that are ours in Christ, and we die to the world and the things it offers us. And listen, it isn't even close. Not even close. No comparison. So I exhort you to live for that final day where we give an account to the Lord. Live for eternity. This life is only momentary. It's described in the Bible as but a breath. It's really, truly that brief when measured against eternity. Jesus is eternal. Let he who has ears to hear, hear. 
Let him hear the word of God. I'd like to pray, and we'll ask the worship team to come forward, and we'll close with a song. Lord, wisdom is called for as we live in the world, but are not of the world. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, by your precious promises, that you would help us to navigate living life in this world, being in the world, but not of the world. Lord, I pray for any who are present, who are aware of a love of the world. Lord, I pray in your kindness that you would lead us to repent, that you would lead us to fix our eyes on Jesus, and I pray that we would avoid compromise in our heart and in our life. Lord, only let us be pure. Only let us be faithful. Only let us be strong in you as we live this life. Pray that we would see clearly where the danger of compromise exists. I pray that you would give us strength to do everything for the glory of God, to live as faithful ones in the land, who even as the faithful ones in Thyatira have an impressive resume. Lord, may that be us. In Jesus' name, amen.